0: This morning we are commencing a new sermon series in the book of James. The book of James is a rather short book, a letter actually, but it covers a diverse number of messages or themes that are all important to the Christian life. And on face value, one of the mistakes that we can make is to think that James is just a random assortment of messages here and there. But James is so much more than that. When we really look at the letter of James, we see a unifying theme in all that James has written. And that theme is that James calls those who profess to know Christ to demonstrate the evidence that they truly know Christ. That is, the, that is the theme that runs through this book. That those who know Christ are to give evidence that they actually belong to Christ. James is very critical of a profession of faith that has no evidence that it is genuine faith. And I think you would agree with me that this theme is very timely. One of the interesting things that I see in some of the updates I get from different uh, news sources that help me to keep abreast of what's going on around the world is that they're saying that more and more people are professing having come to faith in Christ. And we we hear it. We hear about, you know, this one had a revival and this many people and so forth. And when you hear these numbers, as as staggering as they are, you, you begin to think, well, things should begin to look different on the ground. But we hear so many of these stories, and the evidence that people are truly turning to God in, in evidential ways is really, really lacking. And again, James challenges that kind of profession of faith. Well, this morning, my task is to introduce us to this letter of James. And I want to do so by briefly looking at the man, James, and his message. And we'll just have a quick overview of the book of James, and then we'll be dismissed. This morning, I want to consider a single verse. It's the first verse of the letter, so if you've not yet done so, please turn to the letter of James. James chapter 1, and verse 1. James, a servant of God, and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Let's pray together. I thank you for your word. Every word of it is inspired. And I pray that you would use this particular verse that we have just read to introduce us to this letter of James to truly open our hearts to the message contained in this letter. We ask for grace, Lord, in this moment, on this first Sunday of the year, to hear your word as we should. Speak to us now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Commenting on James 1.1, theologian Douglas Moo writes the following. Many readers skip the opening verses of New Testament letters, treating them as unimportant formal details. But this is a mistake. For the letter introductions usually contain more than names. They also describe the writer and the recipients in ways that provide us with important clues about the nature and purpose of the letter that follows. The introduction of James is no exception. Those are the words of a wise and experienced theologian, Douglas Moo. And so taking his wise Caution this morning. We don't want to skip over quickly this first introductory verse in the letter of James. Although it is a short greeting, it states for us the author's identity, it also reveals for us the author's humility, and then it also sets forth the author's ministry. And that's what I want us to. Consider briefly this morning those three aspects of this introduction. And so we begin with the first one, the author's identity. It simply says James. James was as common in that day, perhaps more common in that day, than it is today. And so immediately that should tell us that James must have been known to the people to whom he was writing. You you have to be well known to simply introduce a letter that's going to 12 tribes in Israel that are in dispersion that have been scattered abroad around the world in many countries. To introduce yourself simply by using that name, James. Now when we consider the various men in the New Testament who were named James, There are really only two who would have had the kind of prominence who would have been able to write such a letter and introduce themselves by just James. And those two men are, the first one, James, the son of Zebedee, who was one of the twelve apostles, and James, the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we know that James the son of Zebedee, one of the Lord's disciples, that he, he died very early. We're told in Acts chapter 12, verse 2, that um, he was beheaded. And that leaves only one other one. That leaves the Lord's half-brother, James, who we're told in John chapter 7, verse 5, that he, along with his Other siblings didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah initially. But James, the Lord's half-brother, eventually came to faith, and he um, was the head of the church in Jerusalem, a position that he held until he was martyred about 20 or so years later. But beyond this process of elimination as to who this James really is, there's more evidence that identifies this author of James as the Lord's half-brother. For example, if we look at Acts chapter 15, when we examine the speech that James gave in that chapter at Jerusalem, at a council they were having, when we compare it to the language that we find in the book of James, we'll see that there are several parallels in terms of what is said in Acts 15 and what we find in the letter of James. And so it is is, uh, very easy to associate that the one who spoke those words recorded in Acts 15 is also the one who wrote these words recorded in the letter of James. And then certainly we have the longstanding tradition in church history that tells us that James the Lord's half-brother, is the author of James, who simply identifies himself as James. But yet there are still disputes. There are still disputes about whether um, James, the Lord's half-brother, did in fact write this letter. In the 16th century, there were those who came up and said, no, he didn't write it. They objected. And one of the reasons they objected to the Lord's half-brother writing this letter, is they say that the, the grammar and the linguistic skills that are found in the letter of James, they said someone like the Lord's half-brother could not have written this. They say the, the, the grammar is be beyond him or would have been beyond him. So what they say is that, well, he may have written it, but then somebody came along and they polished it and changed things around for it to be in the form that we have it today. But we have some insightful words from another theologian, J. Mortia. And he gives a very wise response to those who say that this letter was, the grammar in it is really beyond the Lord's half-brother. Here's what he pointedly says. He says, artistic skills, and exceptional abilities owe nobody an explanation. Time and time again, these rise, were least expected. And so we accept the evidence that the letter of James was, in the tradition of the church over many centuries, and from what we're able to see from Scripture, was written by the Lord's half-brother, James. Well, in addition to this verse telling us who the author is and his identity, this verse also, in a very subtle way, reveals to us the author's humility. James shows his humility by the way he refers to himself. James refers to himself as a servant or more literally, as a bond slave. A bond slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. James chose the lowest form of slavery to identify himself with. And and he he, he knew what he was doing because, like, for us, we we have one word, we say slave. But they had different kinds. This was a bond slave. This was the, the lowest form of slave. And James uses that word to identify who he was. And so here he is writing to all these churches, and he says, James, a slave, a born slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Here he is, the Lord's half-brother, an apostle, senior pastor of the church in Jerusalem, And yet he refers to himself by none of these titles, none of these associations. He doesn't say James the Apostle, James, head of the church in Jerusalem. He says James, a bond slave of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is so important we must not overlook it. James recognized that a slave's identity and dignity were not rooted in who he was, or the way he was seen. that slave's identity was connected to whose he was. It was rooted in who he belonged to. And that was true in, in slavery, that you had a position of esteem or less in esteem depending on who your master was. And therefore, in the divine scheme of things, James' function and his office were nothing compared to this fact that he was a born slave. He was the slave who was a slave for life. And there was this ritual, this practice in the Old Testament when a slave had the opportunity to be free and he loved his master so much he would say to his master, I, I don't want to leave you. And as testimony to that, the master would take the slave, he would take him to the doorpost of the house, and he would, he would nail, he would, he would actually bore his heir, nailing him to the house, as it were, to say, This is where you will forever be. James said, That's who I am in my relationship to God and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what mattered to James. And I wonder for us this morning, as we consider James' example of humility, how do we see ourselves? Where do you get your identity from? Where do you place the premium and the accent and the value? Is it in what you have done? Is it perhaps your education, your work, your wealth? Or is it something else? And here's the reality, I believe, that all of us have lived long enough to know that whatever it is in this world, it is subject to change. There's nothing in this life that we find our identity in that will last. And sadly, many people have come to this reality in heartbreaking ways, where they Derived their identity, perhaps from a job that came crashing down in COVID-19 from a relationship that ended through death or ended through divorce. And friends, I think we need to consider this one, is our identity in Christ a greatest, and most enduring treasure? Is it what we esteem the most? Or are we settling for these lesser, transient things and putting them above the fact that we, who have trusted in Christ, we belong to him, we belong to him forever. We read it earlier in Romans 8, Nothing separates us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Nothing. And what a lasting identity it is to have. And here's the truth. To whatever degree this morning we can honestly, within our hearts, say that we find our identity in Christ, and that is our most lasting and valuable treasure. Friends, the only reason we can say that, if we do say that this morning, is because of the grace of God at work in our lives. Because left to ourselves, all of us would be doing what the world does. The world boasts in what it has and what it has accomplished. And left to ourselves, naturally, we would find our identity somewhere else. And so this morning, if you, in your heart, resonate to say that you have come to know that Christ is your lasting treasure. He is the source of your identity. That's an evidence of the grace of God at work in your life. Incidentally, one of the other objections that some have put forth as to why James did not write this letter they say, well, surely if he was the Lord's half brother, he would have mentioned that in this letter. He would have said something about that. But what they miss is that James didn't because he was a humble man. And James didn't find his identity in the fact that he was related to Christ biologically. James found his identity in the fact that he was related to Christ redemptively and he saw himself as the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I remember a number of years ago I heard of a story a true story of a man who began to feel uh, symptoms of a heart attack, went to Princess Margaret Hospital, and he was taken uh, to the back rather quickly because of his symptoms. But they were busy, and so he was there waiting his his turn to be served. And then I'm told that a lady came in and she noticed the man, and she recognized who he was, and she shouted, she said, "How could you all have this man waiting?" And she began to explain to them who the man was and who he was related to. And most of the doctors were foreign, so they didn't know. But when they heard who he was related to, they all clamored to try to serve this man and to, to help him. But regrettably, he passed away because he evidently wasn't served in time, at least humanly speaking. But that man was a humble man. I think we all know that because... Most Bahamians, if they know a name, they push it. If they have a card, they, they, they use it. But this man was a humble man. He, like James, didn't, just didn't push it, didn't, didn't say that he was the Lord's brother. He was a born slave, and that was what was most important to him. Well, third and finally, This introduction to the letter of James not only states the author's identity and reveals his humility, but it also sets forth the author's ministry. His ministry is set forth in these words to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Those words communicated Disappointment and grief. Because these are the people to whom God had given a land. These are the people whom God had gone before and supernaturally fought enemies on their behalf and gave them possession of a land. But because they were unfaithful and because they rebelled against the Lord, As the scripture says, the land vomited them out and they were scattered and they were dispersed. And so so James is writing to a displaced people, a people who are in a land that is not their home, a people who are surrounded in a culture that's very much unlike their culture, James writes to these 12 tribes. His ministry is contained in the body of this letter to these 12 tribes. Again, as we've seen, it assumes a relationship because the way James wrote to them, and perhaps There were particular ones who who James knew. Knew that they were scattered abroad. And no doubt, as he wrote this letter, he had a burden for them. As any pastor would, he would have have cared uh, for them. In particular, we read about a more recent dispersion that they had because of persecution in Acts chapter 8. And in Acts 11, great persecution had come upon the church, and so many of the saints left, but the apostles, they generally stayed, and James was one of them. Many who have analyzed this letter of James say that James reads more like a sermon, unlike letters that Paul would have written, which are more like doctrinal treatises. James wrote more like he was writing a sermon. And again, this being the case, if I were to summarize what James is saying in this sermon, this five-chapter sermon, it would be something like this. Genuine believers in Christ live as genuine believers in Christ. That's the pointed way that James wrote his letter, and I think that's what he was getting at. If you, if you genuinely believe in Christ, then you will genuinely live for Christ. Your life will reflect that you belong to Christ. And the topics that we find James addressing in this letter, they tease out this broader concern that he has for them. But as they are scattered in these different places, as they're living in isolation, they are to live as those who belong to Christ. James is saying to them, though you're you're away from home, as it were, though this is not where you really belong, your life is to reflect and give evidence to the fact that you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll be preaching 22 sermons from this short letter. It's a short letter, and that's a lot of sermons. It'll take us through the end of June. But I want to give a chapter-by-chapter summary as we prepare to close this morning to help us to see the big topics that James addresses in this very frank letter. In chapter 1, James addresses the believer and trials and temptation. Starting on Sunday next week, we'll hear James saying to those who are dispersed, essentially, you're supposed to see trials differently from those who are around you. He's saying to them, for you, you are to count it as joy. You are to recognize that God is doing something beyond your trials, in your trials. It's one of the messages that he addresses in chapter 1. In chapter 2, James addresses the believer and faith and works. And James challenges what our lives look like when we say we belong to Christ. He challenges, for example, favoritism in the church. He challenges when we set up a social order and we treat people differently. Something that should not happen in the church, but sadly does happen in the church. In chapter 3, James deals with the believer on the tongue and wisdom. And we'll hear James saying things like, how can bitter and sweet water come out of the same fountain? How can you with the same mouth bless God and then curse your brother? In chapter 4, James focuses on the believer and pride and humility. He addresses why we fight and have conflict. Ask most of us why we're fighting and we have conflicts. We will give you the facts. James gets to our hearts. He says, no, it's not those facts. It's what's going on inside your heart. Many of us no doubt have plans for this year. James challenges that. James says, how dare you say what you're going to do tomorrow, what you're going to do next year. He says, you must say if the Lord wills. And he reminds us that we must humble ourselves and recognize that we don't own even a second to speak for it. Only God knows. Only God knows. And then he concludes in chapter 5 by looking at the believer and patience and prayer. And he addresses... Again, at the end of the letter, something he addresses at the beginning of the letter, this whole issue of suffering. And and we read the book of James and we wonder, how do people come away believing that the Christian life is a bed of roses and that if you serve God, that you will not have trials and you will not suffer? James is not so. And so what James does is he doesn't spend time trying to get us to psych ourselves out so that we could somehow live above trouble and live against suffering, live above suffering. What he does, though, is he helps us to get a biblical perspective in the midst of suffering, how to be patient in the midst of it, how to pray in the midst of it. Friends, James had much to say to his original audience, and he has much to say to us. I pray we would hear it. I pray the Lord would so ordain it and allow that we would be together as we hear the message of James together. We who have trusted in Christ, we are very much like these to whom James wrote. We are in dispersion. This world is not our home. We are living in a hostile world, in a foreign land, away from the place where our true citizenship is, and our citizenship, Scripture says, is above. And the matters that were important for these Jewish believers to hear, in the context in which they lived, in the context in which they served God, they're important for us to hear, in the context in which we live, and in the context in which we serve the Lord. And so may the Lord help us to hear and heed the message of this amazing and challenging and honest book. James is the kind of friend you want. James is the kind of friend who will speak the truth to you in a very straightforward way that when he's done, you're not y- you don't have to guess what he said. How many of you have friends or people in your life when they say things, you say, now did he just correct me or compliment me? Um it won't be like that with James. We will we will hear in a very straightforward way the words of this book. And may the Lord help us to hear it and may He help us to heed it. Let's pray. Lord, we pray this morning that you'd help us to embrace the message of the book of James over the next several months. Lord, it is your inspired word. Your word endures. Your word is timeless. Help us to hear and heed the message of this book. We pray and ask in Jesus' name.